What's Baking Cake Nation, and welcome back to the Chemistry Cake Online Podcast, where chatting about chemistry has never been sweeter. Chemistry Cake is online, and today airs our second episode in our inorganic chemistry season. Last time, we got to chat with my good friend Cole Carter about why ferrocene was his favorite molecule. So, if you're intrigued and haven't had a chance to catch up on that episode yet, I highly recommend giving it a listen. Today's sweet guest received his bachelor's degree in chemistry at the University of Virginia, his PhD in organometallic chemistry at uh, the University of California, Berkeley, and is currently a professor at Davidson College. He also worked as a scientist at Sandia National Laboratory, which is really cool. Um, And I should also mention that we became Twitter friends and then got to meet each other at the ACS National Meeting in San Diego in 2019, which was truly a fun time. I remember distinctly uh, meeting him in a Starbucks whilst I was catching up on emails and uh, we took a photo and it was really a grand time. So without any further ado, folks, please help me in giving a fresh out the oven warm welcome to my sweet friend, Dr. Mitch Anstey. Mitch, thank you so much for joining me uh, to chat today. How have you been? Uh, Thank you so much. I am doing pretty great right now. Well, that's a seat. That's I'm really glad to hear that. I really, uh, <laughs> given 2020, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and given 2021, we'll see how things go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can only be so hopeful. Yeah. Uh, now before I dig right into the science that your lab does, I'm curious about what you mentioned your favorite molecule was and the justification piques my intrigue even more. So would you mind telling the listeners at home what your favorite molecule is and why? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I said, uh, I think I said allene, like chiral, chiral allene with, um, with uh, like methyl groups. Uh, it really didn't matter what the substituents were on, on, the, on the two ends. But I, I remember, and maybe you can go back to my Twitter feed uh, at they need a crane, and uh, you'd see the um, you'd see me live tweeting me reading this paper. Um, I don't have it open right now. I wish I did, um, but it was a molecular orbital, uh, I guess, uh, description of what happens to the orbitals when they are placed in the chiral environment. And so, you know, you, you imagine, say that like SP carbon in the center, it, it has pi bonds uh, orthogonal to one another. And that's what you think about it. But what they found, or what, what at least the computations say, is that if you take that and you make it a chiral molecule, you actually get, I guess, a spiraling of these molecular orbitals to match the chirality. And I was just totally blown away by that. I really didn't understand it. And like they were using really pretty colors. So I, I was having a good time reading that. So that's that's why I chose it. Yeah, yeah I, I was really intrigued because you had said the C2 helical molecular orbitals. Yeah. And I was like, let, like, are we talking like helical like DNA RNA? Yeah, yeah, exactly Helices. like that. It was like a spiraling feature. So, you know, uh, depending on which direction your screw goes, you have a different enantiomer, right? As I imagine like a real screw. Oh. And so C2 
would be the point group for that that molecule. Ooh, and okay. so then depending on whether it was the R or the S, it's it's spiraling in one direction along that three carbon segment, or it's spiraling in the opposite direction. And I think they even show that with, I guess, the higher order cumulines, which I, I think I think when you say cumuline four, cumuline five, you're just talking about how many carbons are within that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a really a, like a helical molecular orbital. That's what. That's so cool. Yeah, I, let, let's let's be polite and name drop these folks. Oh, Let me yeah. see how quickly I can get to it. It looks like Mark Garner, Roald Hoffman, Sten Retrup, and Gemma Solomon, which I'm I'm looking just at their um, figures now, and this is really cool. Ten out of ten recommend reading this paper. We can uh, link it in the description of this episode. Um, yeah, that's so cool. Oh, okay, yeah. Maybe now you can see why I had to. I had to live tweet. That. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, no, no. That I, I've never seen orbitals like that. Me neither. I, and and so I mean that wasn't their first paper. They they had a they had a couple, um, and a, I mean so folks are seeing this now. It's a computational analysis. Mm-hmm. So is this just a? I believe them because they're they are scientists and they study this stuff. Um, it's just wow. some folks live tweet shows we live tweet papers uh and that's just how the crumbles (laughs) folks um that's so cool wow okay so now you had described to me that your field uh could be briefly defined as making better molecules for better batteries and i'm going to assume that your favorite molecule because we just looked at the paper um they're, those are not the molecules that uh, your lab works with to accomplish this and that they use they work with different molecules so i was wondering if you could tell me a little more about those molecules yeah let's see i i mean classically trained inorganic organometallic chemist mm-hmm. i look at the the d block and i go oh there's my playground i'm gonna grab something from there and make a complex from mm-hmm. it um so i'm a single molecule scientist um, and I would say for the longest time, I, I was also sort of a n- new methods development kind of person. I, I really thought like, what does this complex do to turn a different molecule into something interesting? How do I, how do I make CO, do CO2 capture conversion? Uh, how do I, how do I make some CC bonds? Um, but with that classical training of molecular science, I then moved on to the national lab where I understood a lot more about other challenges in science, other challenges in society. And one of those was energy storage. And so I had the time to sort of grow that understanding of batteries and maybe realize that there are many more kinds of batteries out there than I had expected. And there are many more kinds of batteries that we, that maybe the general public doesn't even realize, but that are in heavy development and they just need some new chemistry. I would say that in general, folks are really, maybe I'll back up. I, from my perspective, had always assumed that batteries were in the purview of material scientists and electrical engineers and and maybe mechanical engineers. And then I, I quickly realized that there are definitely battery components that need the hand of a chemist. Because for the most part, those engineers and, and maybe even material scientists are pulling things off of a shelf. And if they don't have your molecule in a bottle on that shelf, they don't grab it. Mm-hmm. 
So chemists do have a role to play, and I felt like I could really leverage my knowledge of coordination chemistry to start working on that. And so one of the one of the main batteries that I now work on are redox flow batteries. Ooh. I'm also interested. Yeah, I'm I'm also interested in sort of uh, like air air metal batteries. So oxygen as one of the components. And so I think about how a molecular species can live within those batteries and make them better, uh, make them function more advantageously. Getting finally to your question, what are the molecules I'm making? Well, I, I maybe went over the dark side, as some might say, and I moved, I, I kind of ran out of D-block elements to work with, so I went over the main group, but I'm still staying pretty low in the periodic table. I think gallium is one of my favorites right now. Ooh, yeah. um, but, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm working with aluminum, uh, tin, mostly just trying to match um, oxidation state with the kinds of ligands I'm using. But I'm relying on redox activity of my ligands and uh, the metal center, in quotation marks, metal center, to, to bring it all together. That's so cool. I'm, I'm processing all of this information. And I, okay, so first and foremost, you said metal oxygen batteries. You also mentioned a flow battery. Yep, redox flow battery. Flow battery. Can you? Would you mind explaining what each of those are? Yeah, yeah. Uh, redox flow batteries are probably the thing that was my um, my gateway drug to batteries, if you would say, because <laughs> it's like the it's the easiest concept to think about from a molecular chemist standpoint. If you imagine a battery, if you could really boil it down to just a few things, you've got three pieces. You've got, you know, it's like kind of like a three-tiered cake. You've got your cathode, you've got your anode, and then in the middle that marries the two uh, is some sort of um, porous, porous membrane, a separator, a membrane, whatever it is, but it's allowing um, physical ions to, to transfer, uh, transfer between the two. But in almost all of these cases of a battery, whether it's your lithium ion, it's a double A cell in you know in a flashlight, it's all contained. The electrochemical cell and the battery are one. A redox flow battery says, well, what if you had kind of a flow reactor set up? What if your cathode container had a tube connected to it, an inlet, and then you had an outlet? And you only had to hold a little bit in there at any one time. The amount of time it stays inside that that cathode chamber um, was just enough to do do your electrochemical process, and then it would be flushed out. The same thing would then happen on your anode side. And so, the concept is that the redox flow battery is just a really miniaturized electrochemical cell that is, I guess, connected to additional holding tanks with fresh material that are being actively pumped through the electrochemical cell. Your pumping rate, as well as the actual inherent electrochemistry of the species, control how much uh, current, amperage, voltage you're going to get at any one time. Whoa. Okay. So a few things. So I think batteries are really cool. And I thought batteries were even cooler when I was writing uh, my master's thesis and I realized that the material that I work with also is used in energy applications. And one of them is that they used polydopamine as a material for more efficient separators. 
so I was like, wow, that's really cool. I never, I, I actually, I read this and I was like, wow, this is really cool. I don't know what that is, but I'm glad that it does that. Um. <laughs> so polydopamine would be the the layer between the anode and cathode. Is that what you were saying? That there's a so. yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Th there's a huge amount of research in both what lies between the separator, this membrane, and, and I keep saying these multiple names for it because chemically they, they're distinct and they, they do different things. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, chem chemical recognition of the thing that needs to charge balance is an important factor, not just what is being oxidized and what is being reduced. You can have a, a molecule that can have the perfect potential in, in, in its partner and yet, if you can't do the electrochemistry and then charge balance the two cells during the process, you basically lose your battery. Your battery then no longer functions. Hmm. And, and thinking about it as a molecular idea um, is, is kind of what chemists do. And so it's been a great way for me to exercise chem my, the chemistry knowledge I had um, in a brand new way and kind of break out into a new era of my career. And I've kind of, I've, I've been here maybe since about 2010, 2011, when I first started working on these batteries. Holy cannoli. So a whole decade. <laughs> yeah. When more. you put it like that, it sounds like I should have done a lot more. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm just really, I, I was, this was more out of, uh, out of, I, I'm really, really quite um, impressed because it's like, wow, you've been working on this for so long. Like, that's so cool. Like, I, I don't we all feel like we should be farther than we actually are? But oh, yeah. Always? You know, here, here's a here's a really interesting story. So the very first, I guess the paper from from John Goodenough that, that highlighted manganese oxide or like cobalt, cobalt oxide, I guess, as the um, as the lithium ion cathode material, that paper came out in 1980. And it then took 10 years to make the first lithium ion battery. I mean, that, that paper that came out and we kind of think like, oh, wow, going to patent that, going to make tons of money, going to start up a company. Well, still, you have 10 years to go before probably the one of modern day's most incredible inventions. And now recently the, the Nobel Prize awarded for it ever, ever actually got into any working device. It, it takes a long time and, and there's not there's not much you can do about that sort of pipeline of development. I mean, you can cut corners or whatnot and, or whatever, but you're not going to get around it. I mean, I think, I think we're seeing a similar thing with the vaccine development, how quickly that happened, but there were certainly steps that would have normally happened that weren't done, which not, not from a safety standpoint, but from more from an informational standpoint, we we're just like, look, make sure nobody dies when we get it and that it actually is effective will deal with the other interesting science questions at another date that's incredible i mean because the thing is right with research it's you have the discovery which is great but then you also have the optimization and then oh yeah and then you know application and then optimization of application and so it's just really this research is, is just wandering off into uncharted territory and you kind of have an idea of what that territory looks like, but no clear map. And that's what we're trying to find out. And so of course it's going to take a long time because we of course don't want to cut corners. We want to make sure that we have 
we're we're doing sound science and you know because a lot of it has to do with you know safety and and ethics and etc but you know well that's really cool i do have a question just kind of like taking a step back to the batteries um so you had mentioned gallium Mm -hmm. are there other other metals that you play with i well, my major focus in my own person, so I, you know, I have my design principles around what my molecules are supposed to do and how I'm going to get them to do that. One of the principles that I'm relying on is redox non-innocence, the, the idea that a, um, a ligand that binds to the metal is going to, for the most part, shoulder the responsibility of a redox activity that I'm not going to ask gallium to go from three plus to two plus to one plus and back again. So I have mostly been trying to find redox inert systems. And so I, I really go then to the, uh, I'll, I'll stay with things like gallium, tin, aluminum, silicon, and then zinc is, is one of mine, uh, zir- like the uh, zirconium, titanium, uh, in the in four plus oxidation states, so really trying to make sure that there are no valence electrons at all to be able to oxidize be oxidized. So those are the those are that's part of kind of the process, and then designing the ligands is the kind of the other step of it. Once we once we get there, I'm interested in the ligands. Before we do that, zirconium. Mm-hmm. Mostly, I mean, zirconium, because there's some size size constraints that I want to sort of think about, like how big, what is the bite angle of my ligand? Um, what what are the bond bond distances that I need to, to accommodate? And so while titanium would be better from maybe a cost perspective, uh, I'm thinking about, well, I don't know if I can actually get titanium to work. Uh, Zirconium will work just as fine, especially if you're sort of in the proof of concept stage. So that's that's a lot of where we're kind of poking around. Once we once we have a new ligand developed, then we're putting it on various different kinds of metals to see what the response is. Um, sorry, maybe what the metal's influence is on the redox activity of the ligand, if there is any to to be found. That's so cool. Okay, so ligand design. Are, is there an established ligand that you use or it, is there more of like a, okay, we're going to try out these library, this library of ligands and see which one works best? When I first began, I think there was really no, there was really no understanding of what should or should not be used. And so I really just looked at the archetypal redox non-innocent ligands, uh, alpha-diamines, catecholates. Ah, yes. Those sorts of things. But I I moved away from that mostly because I wanted to find my own element of creativity. So we started started to design various different molecules. And so now we've we've sort of landed on still phenolates, but but really based on the the phenoxazine core, which is a fused three-member system where oxygen and nitrogen are in the center ring the oxygen side of that, then I have some oxygen functionality. So I, I'm trying to make a, um, I guess like a chelator of sorts from there. So the phenoxazine is the redox active component. And from what we understand from calculations, it's the nitrogen that's the, the major redox center, if you could really point to one place in the molecule. 
And so then what I'm finding is just the phenoxazine dictates how big my pocket is for the metal to sit within. And then that's when I start to play around with like, okay, well, how big can I, you know, do I need to go to lanthanum? You know, is it, do I need a really big atom or can I, can I get away with gallium or, or titanium, even a really tiny atom and, and then see how that coordination chemistry plays out. Ooh, the lanthanides. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, first and foremost, so much respect to folks that play with transition metals that are not first row. Secondly, respect to, well, as a general umbrella respect to all chemists, but because we're talking about inorganic chemistry, uh, respect to lanth uh, lanthanide and actinide chemists, and then folks that play with your first and second uh, group metals. Just the ki kinds of chemistry that you can do with all of this is just so mind-blowing. That's so cool! Ah! Oh, so much hype! Yeah, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm like watching folks doing crazy stuff with calcium complexes. Like, redox active. Like, you know, it just... Chemists have now become so sophisticated that we can just go to any place in the periodic table and, and just just push the boundaries further than we ever thought they could be. And I mean, when I was an undergraduate, and so I mean, now we're talking like the early 2000s, when, which we already thought was the future then. I mean, now things are things are just so amazing. So it's, it's really been eye-opening and freeing, especially from my perspective, to be able to think about what is redox active. You know, whether it's ligand, whether it's the metal, and then the things that we say are not redox active, you know, like like the the alkali earth metals and, and alkali metals. It's mm -hmm. they are you're just you're going to different potentials and you can coerce them to do some crazy chemistry if you really want to. Just gotta find the right conditions. Polychemicals. That's so cool. Chemistry is so cool. That's why we have this podcast. I agree. Ah, we love it. We love to see it. Uh, this has been such a great chat. I, I love this. Um, however, it does look like we are nearing the end of our chat. But, but not before I ask the most important and probably the most anticipated question of this podcast. Mitch, are you ready? Are you ready for it? I've, I've been ready since the moment I was born. Oh, amazing. Okay. Okay. What is your... Favorite cake flavor and why? Mm. I mean, given your previous podcast, I don't know if this answer will qualify, but ice cream cake is my favorite cake. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's kind of like the Carvel chocolate and vanilla layer oh. with the chocolate crumblies between mm -hmm. is the best one. It's like the guiltiest of the guilty pleasures. Like I, I don't want the homegrown like bespoke ice cream cake, whatever. I want the most craziest Carvel you could ever imagine. Like the most Carvel of Carvels. Just make it processed and oh, <laughs> just so good. Um, <laughs> Don't hold back on any yeah. of the preservatives. Okay, wait. Now, I think I've had this, but it's been a while since I've had an ice cream cake. Are there actual like cake sponges in this? <laughs> Absolutely not. It's just ice cream. <laughs> it's just ice cream in a in a circular shape, like a cylinder. Folks, I think we're going to need to have a season two of the cake debates. Just saying. Anyway, okay. All right. And why is that your favorite cake flavor? Uh, for, for reasons that are totally beyond me, but, but certainly maybe when I was 
um, seven, eight, nine years old, I knew exactly why. But now it's both the thing I just want and I crave because I always have wanted it, <laughs> even at the at the tender age of 39 now. Um, <laughs> I just, every, not a year goes by that I don't have an ice cream cake for my birthday. Oh, I absolutely have to have it. Mm. Um, there was there was one year when I was young, uh, my, I was, of course I was getting a, a, an ice cream cake. My stepdad talked to my mom and he, I, I heard kind of in the room, like, uh, are you sure he doesn't want just like a regular chocolate cake? And I know that's his favorite cake, just a regular chocolate cake, mm -hmm. nothing special about it. And she went to bat for me. She let him know that I was getting an ice cream cake that year. Mm -hmm. Oh, heck yeah. We stand support for cakes. <laughs> um, uh, that's so, okay. That's, that's really sweet. Um, also, just a side note with regard to quote, nothing special about chocolate cake. I think there are some folks that have been on this podcast that might <laughs> Might have some fighting words about that. Anyway, I, I'm just stirring up trouble. I'm ready uh, oh, for yeah. it. Oh yeah, we we love to stir the pot. In, <laughs> in, we stir the pot in in good ways, chaotic good, chaotic good ways. But I've digressed. That's so cool. I, I I will say it's been a while since I've had an ice cream cake. But the chocolate crumblies, I don't know what that actually is. But those mm -hmm. are really the best part. Those are truly the best part, especially when like the frosting gets a little melty, just a little mm -hmm. melty, and then like mm -hmm. sinks between the, the air pockets between the chocolate crumblies. Mm. It's just like that's like I, chef's kiss, amazing. I could listen to you talk about that all day long. I I think uh. you know there might have to be like some series, like a mini series, just cakes ASM like ASMR talking about cake, cake talking about cake, cake, cakes, cakes. Anyway, uh, sweet friend. <laughs> maybe we'll see. We'll, we'll see <laughs> that concept. Um, but sweet friend, this was truly, truly a phenomenal and very learnful discussion. Um, I learned so much. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, to the listeners at home, thank you for joining us today. We hope that you enjoyed the time as much as we did. Um, if you would like to follow the many adventures of Dr. Mitch Anstey, you can follow him on Twitter at they need a crane. Um, and that will be linked in the description of this episode. Uh, and you can also visit Mitch's website, MitchAnstey.org, which will also be linked in the description. Of course, if you would like to hop aboard the hype train, choo -choo, you are welcome to follow me on Twitter at chemistry cake. Additionally, the giveaway in collaboration with D orbital games is still active social media handles also linked in the description. So if you need a refresher, be sure to listen back on episode 64 or check out my pinned tweet on Twitter for more information on how to enter. Well, that is all we have for you today, folks. This is your friendly reminder to stay hydrated, to keep the hype alive, and to notify our village. The members of the Cake Nation stand new growth and love to see you strive to thrive. Thanks for tuning in, Cake Nation. This is Chemistry Cake, signing off.